Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. There is nothing quite like doing this show the Monday after a major. It might be my favorite thing. And here we are. It is the Monday after the U.S. Open. Novak Djokovic is the champion. He defeated Juan Martin Del Potro in three sets on Sunday. I will take a deep dive into that match at the end of the show. Some comment response, and in the middle, I'll talk about that Serena controversy. Because I'll tell you what, that wasn't just tennis news. That was news news. That was everywhere. But first, Djokovic hits his uh, his 14th slam. And I do want to touch upon that because he ties Pete Sampras. That's a pretty big deal, right? And with him tying Pete Sampras, we now have the big three of this era one, two, and three, or at least tied for three, um, in all-time Grand Slam singles titles, which is completely astonishing because Djokovic, this was not his last slam, so he will soar past Pete Sampras. Nadal is still going. Federer could have one or two more. So unequivocally, the three best players in the sport have somehow managed to share an era, which is incredibly hard to do considering two players can't win the same tournament. So basically throughout the years, those three guys, they haven't shared the wealth at all. And this is the result. You know, Stan Wawrinka has a couple. Del Potro has one. Murray has a few. That's it. Uh, Marin Cilic has one. They just haven't shared the shared any titles with, with really anyone. And as a result, it's been... Uh, Utter dominance to the extent that the three greatest players in the sport managed to share an era. I mean, you look at a sport like basketball, any sport for that matter, you could make the same example. But in basketball, uh, you had Michael Jordan's era. And because, you know, and now and now you have LeBron's era, right? Even though LeBron, it's complicated, but he loses in the final a lot. But for Michael Jordan's era... You have guys like Patrick Ewing and Charles Barkley who never won any championships because of Michael Jordan, pretty much. So it's very difficult, obviously, when you have an all-time great player like Federer, an all-time great player like Nadal, an all-time great player like Djokovic, for them to all have this these record-breaking successes at the same time is really unbelievable. Novak's performance on Sunday. It reminded me of his performance at Wimbledon in the Wimbledon final against Kevin Anderson. It reminded me of his performance against Federer in the Cincinnati final. And I say that because it was a rock-solid, business-like, level, focused Novak Djokovic throughout. No ups and downs, incredible level of play, just just maintained throughout the entire match for the most part. And I and I have a new theory about Djokovic's mental because we see in the in the earlier rounds, um, earlier in the week, be, before you get to the final weekend, before you get to semifinals, finals, you see uh, an agitated Novak Djokovic who goes you know up and down and level and and has a lot of a lot of frustration on the court. Um, you know, it, it, it's almost, it doesn't always look easy. And then how come he gets to a final or a semifinal against a great opponent? And all of a sudden he's this calm, cool, collected, even headed Novak Djokovic. I think it's because against lesser opponents, 
he needs something to sort of compete against and fire him up. Because if you if you remember, when he was coming back from the elbow injury, there were times where he would look disinterested and listless on the court, and he was getting upset early. So I think right now he... To, to combat those kind of performances, he he likes the controversy. He needs something to fire himself up. And then when he, when he gets late, the tennis is enough. When he's really challenged from a tennis perspective and there's someone across the court that, that he knows he needs to play at the highest level in order to beat, um, it's no longer a challenge for him to stay mentally engaged in, in the match. So I think that's why we see such a contrast between Djokovic early in tournaments and late in tournaments. And that's kind of my theory. Let me know what you think of that about Djokovic's mental. Because it is a stark contrast. And those three finals that I just mentioned, they have been the cleanest of performances by Djokovic. In this final specifically, Juan Martín del Potro was playing the best tournament out of anyone. In the entire field. I mean, he was playing tremendous tennis, overpowering tennis, and he was well-rested. He was fresh. This is his favorite tournament. It had been nine years. So I completely understand, coming into this match, the the people who thought, you know, I think that this is Delpo's time here. I think Delpo's going to seize this moment. For the most part, he played all right. But Djokovic just did some things that Djokovic does. Um, the things that are kind of the signature points in his game, those were the things that Djokovic did so well in this match. It was nothing out of the ordinary. It was the return, it was the defense, and it was the shot tolerance. And in that order, including, uh, you know, the defense ties in with the movement. In that order, I think those are the three things that makes that make Novak great. And all three of those things really bothered Del Potro, which I want to get into. So... The first thing I want to point out is has to do with the return because Del Potro is used to coming into a Del Potro is used to hitting big first serves and then immediately being able to lean into a big first forehand. And then, you know, he's on top of the point, he can run around his backhand, and once Del Potro really starts slugging forehands, it's a rabbit hole that's very difficult to climb out of. But when, Del, when when Djokovic is able to make really good deep returns and Del Potro has to lean back on his first ground stroke, now you're playing a neutral rally. And now Djokovic can use his superior shot tolerance um, to, to, to win points. And his superior, I guess, shot tolerance and consistency are similar. But I would say shot tolerance is the ability to kind of hang in points and not try to try to end the point and to, you know, play 20 shot rallies. That's more shot tolerance. Consistency, I would say, speaks more to um, less your mental tactics and your shot selection and more to just the ability to not make an unforced error. So I think Djokovic has Del Potro beat in both those categories. But I want to read you first serve points one. Against Djokovic, Del Potro won 67% of first serve points. Um, and then I'm going to skip the Nadal match because it was also close to 67%, but it was such a short match that you just have too small a sample size. Against Isner, 
who's not a good returner, he won 89% of first serve points. Against Chorich, he won 80% of first serve points. Against Verdasco, he won 80% of first serve points. And then I'm going to ignore the first two rounds because the competition is not good enough to even talk about it. But 89, 80, 80. And then against Djokovic, 67. That's just, just a testament to how well Djokovic was returning. It is really bothersome when you're used to, when you're hitting good first serves and you're getting the return right at your feet. That is really, really bothersome for a guy who wants to, start, to open up the point with a big forehand. It's bothersome to everyone, but it'd be a little bit less bothersome to a guy like, I don't know, Andy Murray, who, you know, his game is winning neutral rallies. Del Potro's game on serve is to club a, is to club a first ball forehand. And it's just really hard. Djokovic's return, returning prowess makes that really super difficult. The next point I want to make isn't about Djokovic. It's about Del Potro. I went back and I looked at every time Del Potro um, was broken. And I looked at how he lost each point. And I think the result of what I found will surprise you. So I'm going to pull up my notes again. The first break of serve was 3-4 in the first set. And by the way, I thought the first four games in the first set Maybe the first five games, Del Potro was getting the better of the play. And it was a really great job by Novak just remaining pretty much errorless, even though he was getting pushed around the court and outplayed. Djokovic just hung in there and stayed on serve. So Del Potro played his best tennis, came away empty-handed. And then at the end of the first set, Del Potro finally, his level dropped, played a loose game at 3-4. At 40 love, Del Potro serving. So three three game points here to make it four all. He made a forehand error. At 40-15, he made a forehand unforced error. Just so you know how I scored these, I scored these myself, not, not official scoring. Um, on the run, forced error. Not on the run, unforced error. Simple, that's how I scored them. At 40-30, it was a forehand error. Now this one brilliant defense and return by Novak. If you remember, he's he's on the run. It's a great cross-court forehand by, by Djokovic on the defensive and draws the forehand error from Del Potro right off that shot. At deuce, a forehand error. And then, advantage Djokovic, another forehand error. Six forehand errors. One of Only one of them unforced, but still. At 3-4 in the first set, we make so much out of Del Potro's forehand, it's a fantastic weapon. But in this match, if you really look at the big moments, the big points that Del Potro lost, the forehand was by no means automatic. And if Del Potro was, was going to beat Djokovic, the forehand had to be automatic. It just had to be, and it wasn't. So that was 3-4 in the third set. Now I want to take a look at the second set tiebreak. And I'm going to, and there were two breaks of serve in the second set, but I'm going to ignore those breaks of serve because um, they were, at at the end of the day, it went to a tie break on serve. I want to look at the mini break in the tie break. And I'm going to get back to looking at point by point um, in the third set, the points that Del Potro lost. But for now, I want to take a break from that. And I want to make a, a different point quickly. Watch this point at... 6-4. 6-4. No, no, no. Hold on. What is the score here? I'm having trouble reading. It might be 6-4. Oh, yeah. It's actually set point. 
Watch this point at a set point for Djokovic. Um, I guess the point I wanted to make was the mini break in the second set tie break. Excuse me. Sorry, I'm all over the place. But the mini break in the tie break was also a forehand unforced error. So I want to say that. It was a runaround forehand, and I believe he hit it in the net. Watch this set point, though. And this isn't great for audio, but I'll try to describe exactly what happened here. So watch this one more time. So Del Potro is going to run around his backhand here and hit an inside-in forehand. But watch how he hits this. He crushes it. There's tons of pace. But my issue with this is he just, he values pace a little bit too much, and this just isn't close enough to the line. And what we saw yesterday, what we confirmed, is that you cannot hit a ball hard enough to bother Novak Djokovic. His hands are too good. His pace absorption is too good. And especially with him playing so far behind the baseline, it didn't matter how hard Del Potro hit his forehand against Novak. It just didn't matter. He absorbed it every single time. He actually kind of slowed down his racket, didn't swing very hard, focused on hitting the ball clean, used Novak's pace, uh, Del Potro's pace against him, and was able to neutralize Del, P- Del Potro's pace. It seemed like Delpo was trying to hit through Novak the entire match, and it just wasn't happening. So I would argue that Del Potro was attacking the wrong way, and it just wasn't working. He needed a more diverse attack. You must take time away. You must use angle. You you know you need to use height. Maybe the backhand slice. Bring Novak in with the back with the short backhand slice. Have that to set up your forehand. But clubbing forehands with Novak ten feet behind the baseline, not close to the line. You know, and and just trying to hit it through the court was never going to work here. And I think on this set point, this forehand is a perfect example of what Del Potro was trying to do offensively that didn't work. That is why Djokovic's defense won out in the end. If, you know, you look at a guy, so so diversify your offense. So I told you, I, I mentioned maybe the short slice, the drop shot. How many drop shots did we see? Going to the net, we didn't see that too often. Taking time away, he could have done that better. You know, he just needed a little bit more than what he had. So I wanted to point that out. So now back to the the other point about Del Potro's forehand. I mentioned the, the break in the first set, six forehand errors. The mini break in that tie break, forehand on forced error. Now lastly, I want to take a look at the third set um, at 3-4. This one, it's a little bit different because... Um, it's a slice backhand error, then it's a forehand unforced error at 15-all, a double fault at 15-30, and then at this, this break point in 15-40 is a perfect example of shot tolerance. This is a 24-shot rally. I believe it was the longest of the match. And in the end, Del Potro uncharacteristically tried to take a, a, a routine backhand which he should have traded. He tried to attack down the line, and he missed it because that's not how he hits that shot. The only reason he hit that shot is because he didn't have the shot tolerance to continue trading with Novak. So that's how that that last break went. So Del Potro's first serve wasn't automatic. I mean, his forehand wasn't automatic, rather. 
Um, he His attack wasn't diversified enough. He was trying to hit through. He was trying to use pace, and, and we just saw that, that it wasn't going to work against Djokovic. And then the other point is Djokovic's return. Um, some quick notes was uh, that I have down here is Delpo giving up the wide serve too often on the deuce side. Um, you know, keeping Del Potro at bay eventually. Uh, Djokovic's depth uh, in trading, he you will draw an error from Del Potro event eventually. His forehand, there's not a lot of margin because it's a flatter shot. Uh, it it is a it is sort of a low margin shot. It's not an inconsistent shot, but it also isn't as consistent. It's like Federer, honestly. Federer's forehand is low margin as well, uh, so he will miss it more. He will miss it more. Those two will miss f- more forehands than Djokovic, Murray, Nadal. They just will. Uh, I'm trying to think. Trying to think. Two points here. First, one thing I want to show you is a point that I thought Del Potro was Del Potro's best point of the match. Real quick, here's an example of, I think, something that I could have seen more from Del Potro. And this is a perfect example of diversifying attack. So right here, this is mid-rally, and Del Potro is going to slice this backhand short in the court. Look at Djokovic's court position. He's about seven feet behind the baseline. He spent a lot of the match this far back. This is what he needed to do. Short slice, brings Novak inside the baseline, and Djokovic has to hit it low. So believe it or not, this was a build, not even a trade. This was a, uh, this was a build, and he used height to build, and he broke Del Potro's contact point. Uh, with height, because nobody wants to hit the ball this low off the ground. Not only that, but he disrupted Djokovic's court position. So now Del Potro gets to wind up for a big forehand, and Djokovic is on the baseline. And when someone is playing very close into the baseline, that is where you can hurt them with pace. When they're very far back, you have to hurt them with angle attack. You can't hurt them with pace. So take a look at this. Del Potro is going to rip a forehand here, and look how well-placed it is. Not only does it have pace, but he puts it in a really good spot, and Djokovic has to defend, and look at this. Del Potro steps in, takes time away. Look at Djokovic, hasn't even recovered, because Del Potro takes time away and hits it behind Novak. If you see the ball, it's it's basically behind Djokovic on the ad side, uh, and it's a clean winner. So I thought that we could have seen more from that. Uh, more of that from Novak. The crowd was in Del Potro's favor, and and one thing I want to bring up before I move on from the match and talk about Serena, I think one thing that Del uh, that Djokovic should should really quit is getting upset with crowds. I know there are a lot of Djokovic fans out there that get frustrated with Federer and Nadal kind of being more popular than Novak, and I I talked about it on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Gil Gross Gil with two L's underscore Gross. Uh, but I, I did tweet about it, and I got some interesting responses. Some people pointing to to race. Uh, some people said, you know, he's less handsome. Uh, look, who knows? Popularity is is a is a very weird thing. But one thing he should really stop doing is getting upset with crowds, uh, and he does it a lot. And he's, you know, it's it's a turnoff to me personally. Um, and I'm I'm kind of objective about the players. The only way I don't like a player is if. I think they're a bad person, and uh, that doesn't apply for Djokovic, certainly. I think he's a good person. So, you know, 
I don't I don't dislike Djokovic, but personally, that that thing that he does, where he gets upset at crowds and does it often, uh, whether it be someone shouting out, whether it be people not rooting for him, uh, that is a turnoff. So I think Djokovic should stop that. And there you go. The only negative thing um, I've said about him on this match. Let me take a quick break before I get into Serena. Hmm. This coffee is top-notch. Cafe Kubal in Syracuse, New York. It's tremendous coffee. If you want to find, if you want to really taste the best of what coffee has to offer, you go to your best local roaster and you get the the lightest roast that they have and you get a pour over. That's that's just my two cents on coffee there. Okay, let's talk about Serena. Okay. My I, I want to start with this. I think the biggest mistake that you can make when you when you analyze this issue and and you talk about kind of what happened and 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 where people stand on this is you take a side. Because everyone seems to either be taking the side of chair umpire Carlos Ramos or taking the side of Serena Williams. And both of those are wrong. And it's not just fans. It's not just Twitter. Even the organizations at hand here, the USTA defended Serena, the WTA defended Serena, and the ATP, for some reason, I don't know why they said anything on the matter, they released an an official statement defending Carlos Ramos. Both viewpoints are wrong, and in an incident like this that was ugly and in which Naomi Osaka was was the the, the main victim here, um, both parties were wrong, unequivocally wrong. Serena was wrong, and Carlos Ramos was wrong. Let me lay it out all, all on the table here. Serena was getting hand signals from Patrick Murtagalu. Uh, he was doing something like this. Uh, I think he was saying, you know, push in, press up, take the ball on the rise, be more aggressive, all that jazz. This is common for coaches to do, and it is generally not penalized. In fact, I've seen Carlos Ramos um, penalize players twice before this, one time being um, against Venus Williams. And Ramos is the only chair umpire who seems to enforce this rule. For the most part, coaches, they keep their mouth shut besides encouragement. Uh, but in terms of hand signals, when it comes to you know coaching, you see that all the time. You know, something like that, if, if the coach wants more slice. Like, that is very common and never really called. Is it against the rules? Yeah, but it's not really called. To me, we need consistency there. Carlos Ramos can't be the only umpire who makes that call. It's either everyone needs to make the call or Carlos Carlos Ramos needs to stop calling it so strict because you can't have inconsistencies among umpires. The second mistake made was Serena getting extremely personally offended. First of all, the umpire was saying that her coach was cheating, not her, right? I mean, Serena was saying, are you calling me a cheater? Do not call me a cheater. Apologize. To me, I, I mean, look, I understand. I, I like that Serena is principled and strong in what she stands for. I like that about her. But you cannot be that personally offended when you get a code violation because your box was signaling to you. I mean, if anyone was a cheater, it was Murtaglu, not Serena. 
So Serena got extremely offended by it. The second code violation was she smashed her, she smashed her racket. There's really no debate there um, at all. That is by letter of the law, a second code violation, and there you take away a point. It's the third code violation, uh, which is really up for debate. It's the changeover. It's three games later, and Serena is chewing out Ramos. Uh, the worst thing she said was, you're a thief. And Carlos Ramos proceeded to take an entire game, which is how it works. The third code violation is a game. Carlos Ramos took a game away from Serena Williams. Now, once again, by the letter of the law, I don't think, you know, I think that 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 was verbal abuse of an umpire. It's fine. But understanding context here, it is the U.S. Open final. You have already dished out two warnings. Um, It's late in the second set. You have to be stronger as an umpire than to call that third code violation for being called a thief. I mean, there are way worse things in the world than being called a thief if you're a chair umpire. Chair umpires have been called a lot worse, and I'm sorry, but Carlos Ramos needed to sit there and ignore her. That's what he needed to do. Instead, he inserts himself into the match, which should be far and away the number one goal of an umpire should be to not have to do that. We saw two mistakes this U.S. Open by chair umpires, by Mohamed Layani, who I think is probably the best umpire in the, in the sport, and Carlos Ramos. Both of them inserted themselves into the match when they shouldn't have. When in doubt, if you're an umpire, you stay out of it, you made the right call. And that's it. And Carlos Ramos was too thin-skinned and, and too, too proud to kind of just take the high road there and let let Serena yell at him and then move on. Was it sexist? Maybe. I just don't know. I just don't know. Carlos Ramos is, and, and the reason I don't really know is because Carlos Ramos has a reputation to dish out code violations. He just does. Have I seen men yell at umpires, say, tell umpires much worse and not received a code violation? Yes, I have. But it's Carlos Ramos. Another thing is, I have not seen um, a game penalty ever. I've seen I've seen match penalties like like Nalbandian smashing the, uh, the the lines judge's chair, but that's different. I have not I have never seen um, a game being taken away because you rarely see a player get two violations and then start testing a third. That's where Serena was wrong. You got to understand. I've received two code violations. I need to shut up. And that's it. It doesn't matter how upset you are, how emotional you are. I have two code violations and I need to shut up. Ultimately, I sympathize a little bit more with Serena than I do Ramos because Ramos is a chair umpire and his sole job, his sole purpose is to control the match and to control these situations. Serena, meanwhile, is in the heat of battle and very emotional. So when Serena loses her cool, which is not, you know, it's bad. It's not. There's no excuses for it. Um, when Serena loses her cool, it's a little bit more understandable than when Ramos, a chair umpire, in, in my opinion, losing his cool. The other thing I want to acknowledge is there seems to be a national divide here. You know, Americans, 
kind of supporting Serena and coming to her defense and non-Americans coming to the defense of Carlos Ramos, uh, which, which is interesting. I don't have anything to say about that international divide, but all I want to say is it, it appears that exists. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people, and that has, that has been very consistent, that, you know, there are my, my, the international people I've talked to have defended Ramos, and the Americans have defended Serena, which is just something interesting to note. We are closing in on 30 minutes, but I'm going to uh, quickly respond to some comments. This one on the Roger Federer video, 18 likes. He lost on purpose. Didn't want to meet Djokovic. I saw so many of these comments. They are asinine. They are absurd. They are stupid. And I can't mince words when it comes to something like this. I don't, you know, normally I, I try to say, you know, I respect your guys' opinions. Um, maybe good point, whatever. But I can't with this because it is utterly idiotic. As Brad Gilbert would say, it's a red card. In fact, people did say that to Brad Gilbert. And what did he do? Red card. I dare you to find one person who knows what they're talking about. I dare you to find one person who's in this sport that agrees with that opinion. That is simply internet bogus. Federer couldn't handle the conditions and Millman could. And that's it. To be a, for Federer to be afraid of Djokovic, that, that is a terribly idiotic take. All right. Hi, mate. Really like your analysis. Thank you. I'd love to hear your thoughts of Kyrgios and if you believe um, he is a further Grand Slam winner. I personally like him a lot and think he is the most entertaining player of the past 20 years. I think he's entertaining as well. I also like him off the court. I don't like him as much on the court. And right now, if you ask me, will Nick Kyrgios win a slam? Uh, my answer is no. What I want to see him do is I want to see him get hip surgery and come back from that and see if that changes things. Uh, but right now, he can't stay healthy and he can't stay focused. And it's, it's, it's went on for too long, especially the health problems. They've went on for too long where I don't really see a light at the end of the tunnel. So at the moment, I have to lean towards no. Like I said, I'm going to go through these quickly. It's interesting how far Nadal got in the tournament, mostly relying on his defense. I don't agree with that. Um, I think that his defense was much more unsuccessful than we've seen it in the past. So I thought that he was much more successful on offense. And when he was forced to defend, he was more unsuccessful in this tournament. I thought that was very clear against Dominic Thiem. Gil, a side non-related question. If an opponent has the slice backhand, no drive backhand, what's the best tactic against that opponent? One is to go to the net, and actually Del Potro seemed to be slicing a lot of his passing shots for some reason. I'm not sure why, um, but Djokovic was exploiting that. So I would say two things. Go to the net, approach it. Uh, the other thing, or three things. The other thing is try to find it when you're defending, when you're behind in rallies. Try to get it to the backhand. Uh, and the third thing is use use height, use loop. If someone has a good slice backhand, don't slice your backhand to them. Slice, love, slice. By the way, uh, why can Nadal not improve his serve? He rarely goes to 120 miles per hour. He is tall, strong. Is it a technique issue? Also, not just pace. Pacing is also important. Wonder, I wonder why he doesn't improve the serve. Okay, 
you're right. He's tall enough. He's strong enough to hit to hit big serves, and his technique is okay. There's too much slice on his serve. And when it comes to spins, it's a matter of comfort. It's extreme detail, not a lot of technical change. The toss changes, your contact point changes, the way you pronate the wrist. But Rafa isn't comfortable hitting the serve flat. He needs to get on the practice court and, you know, It'll probably take an off-season, but I think it would be a good thing for him to work on this off-season. Practice flattening out the serve if you're Rafa Nadal. I think that that would be good for him. I remember Vavrinka losing against Djokovic, an epic five-set match in the Australian Open. After that match, he reached his peak. I hope the same happens to team. This is a tremendous comment because I think that team could be like a Stan Vavrinka. Stan Vavrinka should give players like Dom, uh, like Dominic team hope. Because he was a really late bloomer. I mean, Vavrinka didn't do much of anything until he was like 28 years old. So I agree. Hopefully the same thing happens to team. We need a race between Monfils and Dimonor. Yes, we do. Another great comment. I think Dimonor is the fastest player in tennis right now. And I'm really looking forward to uh, continuing to watch him rise up and be a top player. Because that dude is super entertaining to me. And that is all we got. So this was a really fun, um, this was a really fun episode. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will be off next week. Until then, see you next time.